European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 41, Issue 36. Focus Issue, Heart Failure, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Treatment of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, the dawn of sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors era. This focus issue on heart failure, or HF, provides novel clinically relevant information on sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, which, initially proposed for the treatment of type 2 diabetes mellitus, have been found to improve the outcome of HF with reduced ejection fraction when administered on the top of drugs known to improve the outcome of HF and recommended in current European guidelines. According to modelling estimates, when compared with no neurohormonal blockade, the use of a broad-based combination of disease-modifying drugs at target doses in patients with HF may reduce the risk of death by as much as 75%. It is surprising that in spite of this powerful therapeutic armamentarium, less than 1% of patients with chronic HF are currently receiving recommended drugs at doses that have been shown to prolong life. The issue opens with a current opinion article entitled Totality of evidence in trials of sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors in the patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Implications for clinical practice. By Milton Packer and colleagues from the Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas in Texas, USA. The authors provide a perspective on the totality of evidence with SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. This paper is the first to issue a call for a major change in clinical practice based on the concordant results of the DAPA-HF and EMPRA reduced trials. The analyses and interpretations that are presented in this manuscript will undoubtedly generate considerable discussion and debate for a long time. Concern about hypertension often leads to withholding of beneficial therapy in patients with HEFREF. In a clinical research manuscript entitled Effects of Dapagliflozin According to Baseline Systolic Blood Pressure in the Dapagliflozin and Prevention of Adverse Outcomes in Heart Failure Trial, or DAPA-HF. John McMurray and colleagues from the Western Infirmary in Glasgow, United Kingdom, on behalf of the DAPA-HF investigators and committees, evaluated the efficacy and safety of dapagliflozin according to baseline SBP in DAPA-HF. Key inclusion criteria were NYHA class 2 to 4, LVEF less than or equal to 40%, elevated NT-proBNP level, and SBP of greater than or equal to 95 millimeters of mercury. The primary outcome was a composite of worsening HF or cardiovascular death. The efficacy and safety of dapagliflozin was examined using SBP as both a categorical and continuous variable. The placebo-corrected reduction in SBP from baseline to two weeks with dapagliflozin was minus 2.54 millimeters of mercury. The benefits and safety of dapagliflozin was consistent across the range of SBP. Study drug discontinuation did not differ between dapagliflozin and placebo across the SBP categories examined. The authors conclude that dapagliflozin had a small effect on SBP in patients with HEFREF 
and was superior to placebo in improving outcomes and well-tolerated across the range of SBP included in DAPA-HF. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Francesco Cosentino from the University Hospital Solna in Stockholm, Sweden, who comments that altogether the results of the current post-hoc analysis demonstrating efficacy and safety of dapaglyflozin, regardless of SBP values, might significantly contribute to foster the implementation of dapaglyflozin use in HF clinical practice by dissipating any potential safety concerns linked with its hypotensive effects. In a clinical research article entitled A Randomized Control Trial of Dapaglyflozin on Left Ventricular Hypertrophy in People with Type 2 Diabetes, the DAPA-LVH trial. Jim Lang from the University of Dundee in the United Kingdom and colleagues tested the hypothesis that dapaglyflozin may regress left ventricular hypertrophy, or LVH, in people with type 2 diabetes, or T2D. The authors randomly assigned 66 patients with T2D, LVH, and controlled blood pressure to receive dapagliflozin 10 mg once daily, or placebo, for 12 months. Primary endpoint was change in absolute left ventricular mass, or LVM, assessed by cardiac magnetic resonance imaging. In the intention-to-treat analysis, dapagliflozin significantly reduced LVM compared to placebo with an absolute mean change of minus 2.82 grams. Additional sensitivity analysis adjusting for baseline LVM, baseline blood pressure, weight and systolic blood pressure change showed the LVM change to remain statistically significant. Dapagliflozin significantly reduced pre-specified secondary endpoints including ambulatory 24-hour systolic blood pressure, nocturnal systolic blood pressure, body weight, visceral adipose tissue, subcutaneous adipose tissue, insulin resistance, and high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. Lang and colleagues concluded that dapagliflozin treatment significantly reduced LVM in patients with T2D and LVH. The regression of LVM suggests that dapagliflozin can initiate reverse remodeling and changes in left ventricular structure that may partly contribute to cardioprotective effects of dapagliflozin. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Francesco Panini from the University of Zurich in Switzerland and colleagues. They note that the above-mentioned effects of SGLT2I set the ground for a possible beneficial effect of these drugs in patients with HEFPEF where microvascular dysfunction, cardiomyocyte inflammation and cardiometabolic alterations take centre stage. While several landmark studies have long established that implantable cardioverter defibrillators, or ICD therapy, improves survival for primary prevention of sudden cardiac death, or SCD, risk stratification parameters and methods for this purpose are clinically underused. In a clinical research article entitled Clinical Effectiveness of Primary Prevention Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillators Results of the EU-CERT ICD-Controlled Multicenter Cohort Study Markus Zabel from the Universitätsmedizin Göttingen in Germany and colleagues from the EuroCERT ICD study investigators assessed current clinical effectiveness of primary prevention by ICD therapy 
in a prospective, investigator-initiated, controlled cohort study conducted in 44 centres and 15 European countries. It sought to assess current clinical effectiveness of primary prophylactic ICD implantation. The authors recruited 2,327 patients with ischemic or dilated cardiomyopathy and guideline indications for prophylactic ICD implantation. Primary endpoint was all-cause mortality. Baseline and follow-up data from 2,247 patients were analysable. 1,516 patients with first ICD implantation, the ICD group, and 731 patients without ICD serving as controls. Multivariable models and propensity scoring for adjustment were used to compare the two groups for mortality. Adjusted mortality associated with ICD versus control was significantly lower, HR 0.731. Subgroup analyses indicated no ICD benefit in diabetics or those aged greater than or equal to 75 years. The authors conclude that in contemporary ICM-DCM patients, i.e. those with LVEF less than 35% and narrow QRS, primary prophylactic ICD treatment was associated with a substantial reduction in mortality, although this improvement was not consistent across the whole population. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Mark Estes III from the Heart and Vascular Institute UPMC in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, USA. The authors note that the clinician should be mindful of the available risk stratification models and subgroup analyses from the EU-CERT ICD and other studies. It follows that the process of shared decision-making should include careful consideration of the patient's wishes and values, with an individualised assessment of potential benefits and risks of primary prevention of sudden death by ICD's implantation. Cardiosevere-derived cells, or CDCs, are cardiac progenitor cells which exhibit disease-modifying bioactivity in various models of cardiomyopathy, and in previous clinical studies of acute myocardial infarction, or MI, dilated cardiomyopathy, and Duchenne muscular dystrophy. In a clinical research article, Intracoronary Allogeneic Heart Stem Cells to Achieve Myocardial Regeneration, or ALL-STAR, a randomized placebo-controlled double-blind trial. Raj Makars from the Cedars-Sinai Heart Institute in Los Angeles, California, USA and colleagues assessed the safety and efficacy of intracoronary administration of allogeneic CDCs in the multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled Intracoronary Allogeneic Heart Stem Cells to Achieve Myocardial Regeneration, or ALL-STAR, trial. The authors enrolled patients four weeks to 12 months after MI, with left ventricular, or LV, ejection fraction of less than or equal to 45%, and left ventricular scar size of greater than or equal to 15% of LV mass by MRI. A pre-specified interim analysis was performed when six months MRI data were available. The trial was subsequently stopped due to the low probability of detecting a significant treatment effect of CDCs based on the primary endpoint. Patients were randomly allocated in a 2 to 1 ratio to receive CDCs or placebo in the infarct-related artery by stop-flow technique.
The primary safety endpoint was the occurrence, during one month post-intracoronary infusion, of acute myocarditis attributable to allogeneic CDCs, ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation-related death, sudden unexpected death, or a major adverse cardiac event, death, hospitalization for heart failure, or non-fatal MI. The primary efficacy endpoint was the related percentage change in infarct size at 12 months post-infusion, as assessed by contrast-enhanced cardiac MRI. Makar and colleagues randomly allocated 90 patients to the CDC groups and 44 patients to placebo groups. The mean baseline LVEF was 40%, and the mean scar size was 22% of LV mass. No primary safety endpoint events occurred. There was no difference in the percentage change from baseline in scar size between CDCs and placebo groups at six months. Compared with placebo, there were significant reductions in LV end diastolic volume, LV end systolic volume, and NT pro BNP at six months in CDC treated patients. The authors conclude that intracoronary infusion of allogeneic CDCs in patients with post-MI-LV dysfunction was safe but did not reduce scar size relative to placebo at six months. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Francisco Fernandez Aviles from the Hospital General Universitario Gregorio Marañón in Madrid, Spain and colleagues. The authors feel that various points need to be better addressed before proceeding again to clinical trials. If we want to move the field of cardiovascular regenerative and reparative medicine forwards for the sake of millions of patients' cardiovascular health. Treatment of pathological cardiac remodeling and subsequent heart failure represents an unmet clinical need. Long non-coding RNAs or incRNAs are emerging as crucial molecular orchestrators of disease processes including that of heart diseases. In a basic science article entitled Targeting Muscle-Enriched Long Non-Coding RNA-H19 Reverses Pathological Cardiac Hypertrophy, Thomas Thumm from the Hanover Medical School in Germany and colleagues report on the powerful therapeutic potential of the conserved long non-coding RNA-H19 in the treatment of pathological cardiac hypertrophy. Pressure overload-induced left ventricular cardiac remodeling revealed an upregulation of H19 in the early phase, but a strong sustained repression upon reaching the decompensated phase of heart failure. The translational potential of H19 was highlighted by its repression in a large animal model, that being a pig, of left ventricular hypertrophy in diseased human heart samples, in human stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes, and in human-engineered heart tissue in response to afterload enhancement. Pressure overload-induced cardiac hypertrophy in H19 knockout mice was aggravated compared to wild-type mice. In contrast, vector-based cardiomyocyte-directed gene therapy using murine but also human H19 strongly attenuated heart failure even when cardiac hypertrophy was already established. Mechanistically, using microarray, gene set enrichment analyses, and chromatin immunosuppressant DNA sequencing, the authors identified a link between H19 and the prohypertrophic nuclear factor of activated T cells or NFAT signaling. 
H19 physically interacts with the polycomb repressive complex 2 to suppress H3K27 trimethylation of the antihypertrophic tescalcin locus, which in turn leads to reduced NFAT expression and activity. Thumb and colleagues conclude that H19 is highly conserved and downregulated in failing hearts from mice, pigs and humans. H19 gene therapy prevents and reverses experimental pressure overload-induced heart failure. H19 acts as an antihypertrophic, long non-encoding RNA and represents a promising therapeutic target to combat pathological cardiac remodeling. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Gianluigi Condorelli from the Humanitas University in Rosano in Italy. The authors note that the dysregulation of epigenic mechanisms leading to aberrant loss of cardiomyocyte homeostasis is a critical point to consider in understanding the onset of cardiovascular pathologies, thus exploiting long non-encoding RNA as therapeutic agents in myocardial disease could pave the way for efficaciously combating one of the greatest healthcare burdens worldwide. With the advent of omics, an innovative inductive method has provided researchers with possible ways to innovatively monitor health and disease. This approach incorporates data from studies of the genome, transcriptome, proteome and metabolome to focus on the assessment of a varied range of biomolecules. In a clinical review article entitled Omnics Phenotyping in Heart Failure, The Next Frontier. Antonio Bias Genis from the Cardiology Service, Hospital Universitario Germans Trias y Pujol in Badalona, Spain, and colleagues provide a state of the art review aiming to provide an up to date look at breakthrough omic technologies that are helping to unravel HF disease mechanisms and heterogeneity. Genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, and metabolomics in HF are reviewed in depth. In addition, there is a thorough expert discussion regarding the value of omics in identifying novel disease pathways, advancing understanding of disease mechanisms, differentiating HF phenotypes, yielding biomarkers for diagnosis or prognosis, or identifying new therapeutic targets in HF. The combination of multiple omics technologies may create a more comprehensive picture of the factors and pathophysiology involved in HF than achieved in either one alone, and provides a rich resource for predictive phenotype modelling. However, the successful translation of omics tools as solutions to clinical HF requires that the observations are robust and reproducible, and can be validated across multiple independent populations to ensure confidence in clinical decision-making. This issue is also complemented by a discussion forum contribution. In a contribution entitled Heart Failure Development in Obesity Mechanistic Pathways Christian Karasson from the Sargrenska University Hospital in Gothenburg, Sweden and colleagues provide and reply to a recent comment entitled Incident Heart Failure Risk After Bariatric Surgery The Role of Epicardial Fat the editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its listeners.